Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. When the Supreme Court took away the right to abortion, it said loudly and clearly that in America, women are not entitled to equal protection under the law. But the Equal Rights Amendment has been ratified by the states and is just sitting in limbo. To help us make sense of it all, I've invited my dear friend Kate Kelly on the show. Kate is a feminist, activist, and human rights lawyer, and a brilliant author. She's a nationally known advocate for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment and host and creator of the podcast Ordinary People and her new book under the same name. Eyes 59, nays 41, abstention zero. For the women of Virginia and the women of America, the resolution has finally... The court issuing that landmark ruling that this nation has been bracing for and the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, that they have eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. Liberal America was like, we'll never lose this right. We'll never lose this right. And I feel like it's they're not getting the message. The liberal America is not reading the room to the kind of low-grade assault that is coming towards women at every level. The Roe v. Wade debate has really renewed interest in the idea of adding the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Many supporters of that amendment believe it would help protect abortion. My name is Kate Kelly. I believe constitutional equality is the answer. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, Kate. Hi. We have so much to talk about since last we spoke, but first, I just want you to maybe just tell our listeners a bit about you and how you come to be such a champion for the ERA. Yeah, I was born Mormon. I was raised Mormon, and my mother and my grandmother fought against the ERA. They were assigned by the Mormon church in the 1970s to fight against it, and so They were in Arizona, and that's a state that still hasn't ratified. They are talented women, and they work very hard to fight against it. I was raised thinking that the ERA was going to destroy the family, that it was bad and evil, and it was a way for the government to take away our way of life. Fast forward to law school, and I went to law school, and I realized, wait, women still aren't in the Constitution And my mother and my grandmother were a part of making that happen. And so I went to my first ERA rally in 2012, the year I graduated from law school. And I helped restart a group called Mormons for ERA because I wanted people to know that people like me and people in our community 
did not hate women's rights and women, but that we actually supported equality. Now, you and I both know this because it's so much of our life's work. But for people who do not know, tell us about the status of the ERA today. So the Equal Rights Amendment has a very long history, 100 years in the making. It was first introduced in 1923 in Congress. And after a long fight over decades, it was passed in both houses of Congress in 1972. Wildly popular. Only eight senators voted against it. Can you imagine today if only eight senators voted against something that had to do with gender? It seems almost impossible. It seems mind-boggling, but it was wildly popular. It then went on to the states and was ratified within that first year by 30 states. So most people thought, like, it's going to happen. It's a runaway train. It's inevitable. The ERA is a done deal. Unfortunately, I came down to the more difficult states in the latter part of that decade. And it fell three states short of ratification in 1982. The deadline was extended from 79 to 82, but in those remaining years, it still did not achieve those three additional states. However, as you and I know, the fight for the ERA was completely resurrected in 2017. A Black queer preacher named Pat Spearman, who's a senator in Nevada, who we both love dearly, got the ERA ratified in Nevada in 2017, re-sparking an entire movement. People thought, okay, well, if Nevada can do it, then we can do it. And then it was ratified in Illinois in 2018, and it was finally ratified in Virginia in 2020. So those three states that we were missing in the 1970s, we have now achieved. So the amendment has met all the constitutional thresholds for adoption, but it is still not in the Constitution. Let's talk about that. It's frustrating because Article 5 of the Constitution is what governs the amending process. And it's very simple. It's brief. The founding fathers kept it straightforward. There are only two requirements. One is that it meet two-thirds in both houses of Congress, which we did in 1972. And two is that it's ratified by three-fourths of the states, which right now, until we get D.C. and Puerto Rico and additional states, is 38 And we have met those two requirements. There are no other requirements. There is no role for the executive branch. There is no role for the courts in the amending process. So even if you're a strict originalist, which to be clear, I am not, but there are many justices on the Supreme Court who are, even if you're a constitutional originalist, if you're on the Supreme Court and you think only what was written in the Constitution is what counts, then what is written in the Constitution is those two requirements, and we have met them. Ms. Milano, you are now recognized for your testimony. Madam Chair, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for holding this hearing and for inviting me to share some thoughts with you today. Um, While I will speak briefly about the importance of the ERA, this hearing is not a debate on that amendment. That debate is over. We won. The states have directed Congress to amend the Constitution, and now it is the duty of Congress and the administration to get out of the way and remove the arbitrary, unnecessary, and shameful deadline that was cynically imposed nearly half a century ago as a poison pill. The sort of sticking point 
is that there is also a statutory requirement. The statutory requirement means it was passed by Congress. It's not in the Constitution. And it's just like procedural. Like, okay, how do we know when this whole thing is done? How do we know when a new amendment is in the Constitution? And that requirement is that the archivist of the United States, who's just an unelected librarian in charge of keeping papers, old papers, the archivist of the United States is supposed to certify the additional amendments and publish the amendment in the Federal Register as the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. And that part, that unelected librarian who's sitting in the hot seat in Washington, D.C., that part is the one remaining key. Okay, so then the Supreme Court has overturned the right to an abortion in America. We all saw this coming even though we all saw this coming, are still pretty surprised by this. And when I say we all saw it coming, I don't mean from the leak, from the judgment leak. We all saw it coming for the last six, seven years, and some who have been fighting this battle for the last 50 years since Roe became the law. Can you just walk us through, you're a lawyer, can you walk us through from a legal perspective how this impacts people differently based on their sex? Yeah. So the Dobbs decision, like you said, overturned 50 years of precedent. It's unheard of. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. But many of us saw this coming because it's like that quote, they tell you who they are, believe them. They were telling us who they were all along. They were saying that they wanted to overturn Roe all along. And so it wasn't difficult to read the writing on the wall. What was difficult was to believe the audacity, the sheer punitive nature of this court. And so now it's finally happened. Now we all know that Roe is the first step on this train, not the last. And this is the first increment. So the reason they said that they overturned Roe is explicitly because the words abortion and privacy are not in the Constitution. So Roe was decided based on this right called privacy, which is a what's called an unenumerated right or substantive due process right under the 14th Amendment. The first time that popped up was in 1965 in a case called Griswold. That was a case about contraceptives and whether or not married people could use contraceptives. Yes, it was not legal for married people to use contraceptives in the United States until 1965. And that case there was a justice, William Douglas, and he decided, okay, the word contraceptives is clearly not in the constitution. So I'm going to fish in there and I'm going to find this right called privacy. And I'm going to fish it out of what he called the penumbras or shadows of the other constitutional rights. The words aren't in there, but combined with other rights we have, we project or surmise that this right to privacy exists under our current constitution. Interestingly, people, amicus parties and amicus briefs for the case, for the Griswold case, argued under equality. They wanted him to fish in there and find equality. And he declined. What he did was he found privacy. And so this privacy concept is what was used in Roe as well to say, sure, the word abortion is not in there, of course, because the founding fathers either didn't know about the word or it wasn't a priority to them or There were only founding fathers. There were no founding mothers. There were not women at the Constitutional Convention or queer people to understand or explicate our rights. And so the founding fathers did not put the word abortion in there, but it fits in under this privacy concept. 
Now, given the Dobbs decision, they have completely demolished privacy. They have said privacy is not in there. It's not enumerated. We're originalists. We only go with what the founding fathers literally said and wrote down. And so privacy was always wrong. It's just exhausting. I got to ask you, what do you say to someone who says, well, it doesn't treat people differently based on sex because if you don't have a womb, you can't get pregnant. Men aren't denied abortion by law. They are denied it by biology. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think it's important to understand that restrictions on access to abortion are sex discrimination. And that's what they're saying, essentially, that it's not sex discrimination. It just denies abortion to everyone. And the people who need them happen to be women, <laughs> which like 10 points for creativity, I guess. In this draft opinion, Alito quotes a case that mentions the goal of preventing abortion and states it's not automatically sexist in his view. He refers to, quote, invidious animus against women and says these rules don't have that. And he says because of that, going forward, courts should okay abortion laws by that low standard that I'm telling you about. But the restrictions on access to abortion are clearly sex discrimination and violate the Equal Rights Amendment once you get in there because restrictions on abortion single out abortions for more onerous treatment than other medical procedures that carry similar or greater risks. So they only target the sex that can get pregnant. They only target the sexes and gender creative people who can get pregnant. So uh, that argument is ridiculous. They don't target, for example, all forms of medication that are available only to men or benefit only cis men. This is the one procedure. This is the one medical procedure that is targeted in this way. There is no other medication. There is no other procedure. There is nothing else that is targeted in this way. And let me tell you about a case in New Mexico that gives me a lot of hope for the Equal Rights Amendment. There was a case in New Mexico, and it sort of was a state-level Hyde Amendment. So it was saying that state funds cannot go to paying for abortions. And under their state-level ERA, they said no, that you cannot take out one single procedure that only one type of sex or sexes can get or benefit from and ban that procedure. That is sex discrimination because you are isolating one procedure that only one group of people will need. And so that is sex discrimination. And we already have a positive case. And also, actually, there's been a very, in my home state of Utah, there's been a very positive development. The Dobbs decision came down two times the ban, the trigger ban that Utah has been struck down under their state constitution because Utah has a state ERA. And it's been under the state ERA that they've managed to fight this ban. And the Utah state ERA is from 1896. It's from when the constitution was originally put in. So clearly the founders of Utah, who were polygamists, by the way, the founders of Utah who were polygamists and only put that in to fight the national perception that they were anti-woman 
and to fight perception that polygamy was bad. So they're like, we're not bad. We're sticking women in our constitution. That's how much we love them. And so the ERA in Utah has been around since 1896, and it was used this year, 2022, to save abortion access. And that's what can happen on the national level. So we have these positive cases on the state level of the ERA being used to strike down abortion bans as sex discrimination. You spoke about originalism before, and Clarence Thomas in the Dobbs decision spoke about originalism, which is the idea interpreting the Constitution through the eyes of the founders, not in the eyes of the world in which we inhabit. How the fuck is that even a thing? It's interesting. Originalism is actually a pretty new theory. It's not like originalism originated with the originals. Originalism was never a concept. The original founding quote unquote, fathers of this nation put in a clause, Article 5, to amend the Constitution. So they knew that times would change. They knew that our country would change. They knew that interpretation would change. So originalism is actually imposing upon them something that they didn't even think, ironically. And it's relatively new. So it's the legal thought that like only those handful of white cis land-owning men were the ones who get to decide in perpetuity and forever what our rights are, which is like patently absurd and also something they themselves didn't think. And so it's just ironic, you know, Thomas and the other justices who claim to be originalists, it's just an excuse. It's just a cloak. It's just a sleight of hand. And that's what Thomas explicitly said in the Dobbs decision. This is not conjecture. This is not us being alarmist. This is not you and me saying, oh, no, other rights are on the chopping block. That's explicitly what he said. And he said that all other rights were under privacy, which include same-sex marriage, same-gender loving relationships and LGBTQIA sex, different race marriages. The right to contraception. Contraception, good old Griswold. All of those are under attack because they are not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. And that is why we need the ERA. What does this say about us? I think what it says about us as a country is the ideals, the ideas, the laudable values and goals that we think of as patriotism are not actually why our country was founded. And we have to go back to the roots because the roots are rotten. The roots are misogyny. The roots are racism and slavery. Many of the original founders of this country were slave owners and slave breeders. George Washington, for example, owned slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Thomas Jefferson was also a slave breeder. Thomas Jefferson had children, you know, on the basis of sexual assault with his own enslaved people and sold children that he sired. These are very, by any measure, bad people who put into the Constitution incredibly terrible protections. Really, the entire document was designed to protect them and their property. And when they said all men are created equal, what they meant is all men who are in this room right now. Not all people, not all men, and certainly not women. In 1776, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. We will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. 
Okay, so how does the ERA solve these problems? The ERA goes back to that original document and says, okay, it's rotten to the core. And from the beginning, this is what I wrote about in my book. I wrote a book, Ordinary Equality, and it's about the history of women and queer people. And women and queer people have been saying this since before the Constitution was written. You know, I talk about in the book, I talk about Abigail Adams. And Abigail Adams was communicating with her husband, who was at the Constitutional Convention at the time. And she said this famous quote, which is, remember the ladies. But she also said extremely strong rhetoric. She said, we will not be beholden to a government that does not represent us. We will foment a rebellion. Women at the time, their own wives were telling them, we want to be included in the Constitution. And they made a conscious choice to exclude us. And that's how it's been since the Constitution was written and ratified. And so Actually, what we need to do is go back and change that document. We cannot have permanent protections for abortion. We cannot have permanent protections for queer people until we prohibit sex discrimination in the Constitution. And that's what it is. As you know, the main clause of the ERA is very simple. It's 24 words. It says that sex discrimination, we cannot have discrimination on the basis of sex in the United States or any state. And then the second clause of the ERA is also equally important, which says that Congress has power to enforce it. So we need to change the Constitution in order to get better laws and more robust laws that protects us on the federal level. That includes abortion. That includes LGBTQ rights and all of these other rights. You can pass laws in Congress, but those are not permanent. Those can be overturned at any time. If, for example, we lose the House, if we lose both houses, if we lose the presidency, we have a lot of hurt in the future. And these laws are not permanent. They can change with the whims of who's in Congress. The thing that can't change is the Constitution. Once you get an amendment in the Constitution, it is permanent. It cannot be changed. The only thing that can change it is another amendment. And as we've seen, it's very difficult to get an amendment in there. It's taken us 100 years. So once we get it in there, it is a permanent protection. It will outlive every person currently on the Supreme Court. So we have a terrible Supreme Court right now. It's very difficult unless the Democrats in the Senate get enough political will in order to unpack the courts. We're stuck with them. We're stuck with who's on the Supreme Court right now. For the rest of our lives, we are stuck with the people who are currently on the Supreme Court, many of them very young. And so we can't change who's on the court necessarily, but we can change the document that they are charged with interpreting. We can change those words. So when they say it's not in the words of the Constitution, they will be wrong. What do these originalists think of the other 27 amendments in the Constitution? That is sort of terrifying. I think that's part of the reason the right wants a constitutional convention is they'd like to get rid of some of these amendments. But even originalists have to admit that Article 5 exists. So there is an official way written by the founders of this country written by the Founding Fathers to change the Constitution. So arguably, they accept the 27 Amendments. What they don't accept are unenumerated rights. What they don't accept are things that are not written down. So, for example, privacy is not one of the amendments. Privacy is found under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, but those words are not in it. It's not explicit. Sex discrimination is not in the Constitution. They're right. Sex discrimination is not in the Constitution. It's only there because the Supreme Court justices over time, thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Polly Murray and some of these other pioneering heroes, have interpreted it in. 
but those words are not in there. And we talked a little bit earlier about the preamble to the amendment, which set this ridiculous, arbitrary and non-binding deadlines. So if those deadlines are removed, will this Supreme Court get in the way of adding it to the Constitution? What's the other mountain that they're forcing us to climb? That's the problem with the left and the right. Can you imagine if the right was one signature away from changing the Constitution to their benefit? It would be like, billions of dollars. It would be like marches on Washington. Every congressperson would be doing a filibuster. Like it would just be like all hands on deck, red alert, SOS, get it done. And so that's the energy we need to be like, we are so close to changing the constitution. President Biden could instruct the archivist, her name is Deborah Wall, the sitting acting archivist, could instruct her to certify and publish the ERA today. Congratulations to the new Biden-Harris administration. My name is Adrienne Spinner. I'm a mom of two and community organizer from North Carolina. On behalf of the Board of Directors for the Equal Rights Amendment Alliance of North Carolina, I call on you, President-elect Biden, to follow through on your commitment to full constitutional equality for women and all people by directing the Archivist of the United States to publish the Equal Rights Amendment as the 28th Amendment in our Constitution. He could do that today. And that wouldn't resolve the problem. Like you're saying, the enforceability of the ERA would eventually have to be litigated. I'm also going to mention that Biden campaigned in support of the ERA. So him just not doing anything once he's in office is so infuriating to me, especially after we've lost the right to bodily autonomy. It's absurd, honestly. It's such an easy step. Imagine if the reverse were true. Imagine if we had a Republican president and they're like, oh, I can just do a signature and do one more step to get this into the Constitution. They would do it immediately. So I think we need that boldness, that audacity. We need the eye on the prize that the Republicans always have. And I do think, like you said, eventually it will be litigated. There is a case right now in the D.C. Circuit against the archivist by the states who have recently ratified saying this is a state's rights issue. Our legislatures met and ratified something. And that is not easy. And it represents the will of the people in Nevada and Illinois and Virginia. And those people need to be recognized. The will of the people in those states needs to be recognized by the federal government. It's blocking something that is not their job to block. And then, of course, like you mentioned, there's also in the House and in the Senate uh, bills to eliminate the deadline, essentially just to make perfectly clear that a previous Congress cannot bind a current Congress and that the deadline is not valid and never was. But even if that doesn't happen, Biden can act. This is a purely ministerial duty. The archivist could just slip in there, sign the signature put a stamp on it and put it in the federal register. And that's going to make it that much more difficult to get it out. Imagine if when you go to the National Archives, there is an exhibit about the 28th Amendment and the ERA. Imagine if little kids, when they get their pocket constitution copies, in there is the 28th Amendment. And so I think it's something that we can do to get that much closer. And eventually, perhaps Supreme Court could intervene, but it would be extraordinary. It would be unprecedented. It would be almost unthinkable for the Supreme Court to insert themselves in a process that explicitly given them no role. It is clearly a political question. Article 5 only leaves it up to the legislative branches. The reason being they think it should be up to the people. 
So Congress and the state legislatures are the only branches that are tasked with changing our Constitution. And for the Supreme Court to take this long arm and intervene into a process that they are not a part of and that even the Constitution explicitly delineates they are not a part of, never say never, but that would be unprecedented. It's kind of sensitive. It's frustrating to me. And that is like there's so many incredible organizations that I work with specifically on women's rights and women's issues. And it seems like every time I bring up to any of these organizations suggesting a united front and voice in the ERA, there are a million reasons why these organizations are like, you know what? Yeah, I don't think we could get it done because of the time. Like, what is it going to take? We've lost the right to bodily autonomy. What is it going to take for all of these organizations to understand the importance of getting the ERA published in the Constitution? And this is another frustration I have with the left in general, is we will put excuse in front of excuse in front of excuse, and it's against the rules, and da-da-da. The Republicans don't even have to stop us half the time. It's us stopping ourselves. And the reverse is never true. They just sally forth and get away with as much as they can get away with in the amount of time they have, because their primary value is power. And our primary values are like consistency and authenticity and all these other things. And we have to rally around this. There is no other choice. And so I agree with you. I talk to many organizations, particularly reproductive rights organizations, and I say the ERA is the answer on the state and federal level. We have 26 states that have state ERAs and the rest of the states that don't need them. We need to focus on getting those state ERAs in all those places. For example, it's on the ballot in Nevada this year. In November, the Equal Rights Amendment is on the ballot in November. Should we be shifting our focus to the states that don't have a state ERA? Do you think that would be easier to get done at this point? I see it as a twofold strategy because what I saw happen in Virginia, I was traveling on a bus in Virginia that said honk for equality. I was going in an ice cream van all around Virginia. I basically spent two years doing education in Virginia. And what I saw there when the federal ERA was being ratified in Virginia, everyone knew about it. Like my Lyft driver asked me about the ERA. The bellhop at the hotel saw my button and said, oh, what's the status of the ERA? I'm so excited. It became a huge statewide issue, and it was in the top two voting issues for voters in Virginia in those elections. This was the scene at the Virginia State House after lawmakers voted to approve the Equal Rights Amendment. The passage marked a historic moment for the ERA, which was written in 1923 and approved by the House and Senate in the early 70s. And so, like I said, in Nevada, it's going to be on the ballot in November. In New York State, they passed it just a few weeks ago, and then it will be again voted on. And then in 2024, most likely, it will be on the ballot in New York. So these state ERAs can be catalysts. Imagine if everyone in New York State knew about the ERA. Then it can be a catalyst for us to put pressure on the federal ERA to actually get it done and vice versa. So those I think they can work as twin strategies. And, you know, the right never said, should we do this or should we do this? They're like, let's do everything. And it works. They did the state by state strategy. And that's why they have limited row in the way that they have. And then they also had a federal strategy to strike it down. So when it was struck down, immediately 26 states are poised to completely ban abortion. And they've been working on both. They've been working on both fronts. And so I think we need to do the same. But I just want to go back to what you said. 
which is many groups, even groups that exclusively work on women's equality and gender equality and LGBTQ equality and reproductive rights, do not realize the value of the Equal Rights Amendment. And that simply just has to change. They have to realize that there is only one way to get permanent equality, and that is through the Constitution. I hear a lot of people in the repro movement, for example, saying, oh, we need an amendment to protect abortion rights. And I'm like, guys, spoiler alert, we have one. We are one step away from getting there. And we can't wait another hundred years. To start over with a new abortion amendment is basically unthinkable. To think that you could get 38 states today to pass that is is just not strategic. It's not smart. Let's take the momentum of what we've already done for the last hundred years and get it across the finish line. And then we can strategize on how to use it to overturn Dobbs directly. When the Constitution changes, we can argue that case again. And we can fight in the states to block the bans based on the state-level ERAs, which, like I said, have has already been happening. Even in tough states, Utah is the worst state in the United States for women based on every category. Wage gap, women's participation in politics, sexual assault, it's always in worst numbers for all of these categories. It's a very terrible state for women. And even there, they were able to use the ERA to protect abortion access. So if we can do it in Utah, we can do it anywhere. Okay, so why have organizations not rallied? Why has Congress not acted? Why has the administration not acted? What the fuck is in the way? I think we are our own best enemies. And for example, in the Biden administration, I don't know for certain. You know, I have had meetings with the former archivist David Ferriero and the current sitting archivist Deborah Wall. When I was in Congress, uh, working in Congress, I met personally had meetings with them, and they are for the ERA. They both expressed that they are they want it to happen. They wish they could. And so personally, the archivist is for the ERA, but the archives feels like the administration is blocking them from getting it done. And that's hugely disappointing. And I don't know the reasons why I haven't personally met with President Biden or Vice President Harris, but I feel like they're probably calculating in the future. Only a small handful of people like you, Alyssa, and I care vehemently about the ERA, care passionately about its ratification. And so they're weighing on one hand, the small number of feminists who care about the ERA still versus a potential constitutional kerfuffle. What if the Supreme Court overturns their ratification? What if we have this constitutional crisis? Yada, yada, yada. They're creating in their minds the possible fallout from doing this versus this small group. So I think the thing that needs to happen to get this done is more people need to know about it. More people need to speak up about it. More people need to care about it. And if in 1979, when they extended the deadline from 1979 to 1982, 100,000 people marched in Washington in support of the Equal Rights Amendment. We do not have 100,000 people marching in support of the Equal Rights Amendment today. 
And that's what it's going to take. We need more people to care. Everyone listening to this podcast, I also have a podcast. It's called Ordinary Equality. The entire first season is about the ERA. So if you don't know anything about it and you want to learn more, read it. Listen to the podcast. Read my book. Listen to Alyssa. Listen to other folks who are talking about the ERA. Follow Generation Yet Ratify is a group started by two 15-year-old girls in support of the ERA, and they now have chapters in 34 states. So it's not just old people. It's not just old white ladies who care about the ERA. It is young people. And by young people, I mean people who can't even vote yet are realizing that they are not equal in the Constitution and they want it to be done. People are camping outside of Chuck Schumer's office demanding that he vote on Senate Joint Resolution 1. Teenagers care about this so much that they are willing to camp out in front of his office in Washington and demand justice. And if teenagers can care about it, so can the women's rights movement. So can the reproductive rights movement. So can the LGBTQIA movement. We have to start caring about this in the way that young people do. Women of all ages gathering outside Schumer's home, some even bringing their infant children along. Lisa Raymond Tolan is part of the group Indivisible Nation BK, one of the organizers of the rally outside the senator's Brooklyn apartment building Wednesday evening. Democrats have been fundraising off abortion rights and the right to choose for my entire adult life, and it's time for them to use the majority and do something about it. It's just there's so many bad faith jerks who are in power. Do you know what I mean? Like last year I testified at a hearing that Congresswoman Maloney and you put together and a sweaty misogynistic member of Congress stated that all of the women testifying were just there to complain about America and tried to get us to list three things we loved about the country. Like what the fuck? Like how can we ever get this done when there are so many bad faith jerks who are in power? I will say that you did an excellent job in responding to that bad faith question. But I think we need to keep our eyes on the prize. They are going to distract us. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all these other people are going to distract us with the daily outrage of the absolutely despicable things that they're doing. But they never lose their eyes on the prize. They always were coming for Roe. And no matter what happened in 1973, is really when the anti-abortion movement started. Imagine starting a movement after a huge, colossal loss, after such a loss that no one thought it was possible to ever overturn Roe. That's when they started their movement. They actually meant this isn't over. Of course. We say this isn't over, and it's like, well, you know, this isn't, maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it is over. They were like, it's not fucking over. And even if it takes us 50 years, we're going to get it done. And there's an election in the fall and things look pretty grim right now. And I'm super concerned what happens to abortion rights and the ERA. If I don't even want to say it out loud, but if Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House, it's just going to get worse and worse. It's devastating for the people on the ground who need abortion access now. It is unthinkable that these people will be denied bodily autonomy, their most basic human rights. This is not a debate. This is not, it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. We are going to keep getting abortions no matter what. I think people need to understand that we will not abide by this decision. We will keep helping people get abortion care. You can get 
online pills that work up to 12 weeks of pregnancy through aid access. You can actually get them advanced provision. So aid access will give you pills advanced provision, which means you can get them before you even become pregnant. Or if you never can get pregnant, you can have abortion pills in your cupboard just in case. If you need them for a friend, if you need them for someone else, and aid access prescribes the pills through doctors in other countries and ships them from abroad. So it doesn't matter where you live, no matter what state you live in, if you can get a letter in the mail, you can get abortion and abortion up to 12 weeks. And so I think we need to help people understand that we are not going to obey this ban. We are going to defy all bans in every state in the short term to get the people the care they need. And then we also need to continue to fight even if we lose the House, even if we lose the Senate, even if we lose the presidency, even if it takes 100 years, that's, I think, the lesson of the Equal Rights Amendment. It keeps getting resurrected by every generation. Like I told you, these teenage girls and queer people are taking it up now. Every generation realizes, wait, we're not in the Constitution? Like, what happened? Why aren't we? And we're going to keep resurrecting it until it happens, even if it takes another hundred years. You know, Crystal Eastman, who is a co-author of the ERA, she gave a speech in 1920 and she said, the Equal Rights Amendment is worth it, even if it takes 10 years. The sentiment is the same. It's taken far longer, but it's still worth it, even if it takes another hundred years. I hope we get it this year. I hope we get it tomorrow. But even if we don't, we can't be defeatist about it. We can't say, oh, the deadline, oh, procedure. Bringing up all these arguments is very defeatist. We need to empower ourselves to rethink our entire country. We need to rethink the structure of our country and the structure of our form of governance is the U.S. Constitution. So we need to rethink the Constitution. And we need to mean it when we say the fight is not over. And we need all of our listeners right now to get involved in this fight because it's literally the only thing that matters right now. My last question, I always end with this question, and we need your answer desperately in these times. What gives you hope? I am given hope by young people. Young people in this movement care about things and think about things in very creative ways. They dazzle me with their intelligence, with their empathy, with their strategy. And so I'm very energized and excited and hopeful about the next generation and also working intergenerationally. For many years, you and I were the youngest people in the room at ERA meetings, and I'm 41. You know, when we're the youngest people in a room, it's not exactly a young crowd. And so I, as Generation Ratify began to ramp up and as I began to see younger people, I feel like these older feminists feel like, oh, thank God there's a new generation to take over this fight, to collaborate with, to think differently. What gives me hope is young people and they know that the best way to protect abortion rights is to finalize the ERA. Kate Kelly, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to turn to a particular um, uh, right that has been the center of a lot of discussion in Congress and the Supreme Court and in many states throughout the country, and that's the right to safe and legal abortion care. Across the United States, pregnant people of color experience systemic health inequities as a result of centuries of policy violence, including barriers to health insurance, greater stigma, and heightened stress caused by racism. This is certainly true in my district, the Massachusetts 7th, and for many others around the nation. 
These are the things that have more rights than women in America. Men, guns, corporations, fetuses, churches, social media companies, sexual harassers, domestic abusers, cyberstalkers, slanderers, media companies like Twitchy, Breitbart, and other extremist outlets, actual goddamn fucking Nazis, political parties, the filibuster, Supreme Court justices who want to eat dinner at a restaurant, and the worldviews of white, property-owning, slave-holding men who have been dead for more than 200 years. Put the damn Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution already. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.